the mindfulness itself, that tool, that technique, that practice, that application-based practice, that's where it comes into play is making sure that it becomes the mortar, the fulcrum to hold all these other pillars together to be able to perform at our highest level without sacrificing our health and wellness. Welcome to Sauce Talk, the podcast about sports and the mind and living well in general. This is Billy Hansen, and today's episode is part one of a two-part interview that I did with Dr. Ford Dyke. Ford is a professor and the director of mindfulness-based performance and health optimization at Auburn, and he's also an Olympic team handball player for the United States. So as you know, if you've been listening to this podcast, you know that Ford's background puts him right in the center of the bullseye for the things that I'm interested in here. So it was a pleasure to get him on the podcast. We discussed Ford's background in extreme sports and how that informed his academic path. We talk about how being outside in nature can restore attention and produce other positive mental changes, which is something that if you spend time in nature, you understand intuitively, but he actually studied it for his PhD dissertation. We talk about mindfulness and Ford's other pillars for health and how he thinks mindfulness is the core pillar that supports other aspects of optimal health and performance. We talk about the importance of sleep, how mindfulness affects the brain and nervous system in positive ways, flow states, and other topics. One other announcement, I posted a new blog post this week which was in direct response to the new documentary on Netflix called The Social Dilemma, which I definitely think is worth seeing. Um, It's about how social media and Google and the internet is producing bad outcomes, both at the individual and societal level. And that documentary is focused more on the necessary changes that need to be made within these companies and the kind of things that we need to do at a societal level. But in the meantime, I think individuals have to take pain to protect their own mental health and sanity while using the internet. And because I spend a ton of time on the internet and because I write algorithms, so I understand kind of how the sausage is made, I've I've put a lot of thought and effort into protecting my own mental health and sanity and productivity when I use the internet and my phone. So what I did was I just listed out a bunch of practical steps that you can int- that you can implement immediately on your phone and on your computer, and you can cherry pick from my list. So if you're interested in any of those hacks or tips or tricks, you can find that blog post on my website, billyhanson.net, and find blog. I'll also put that blog post as a link in the show notes here so you can find it in your pod player if you want to click on it there. So to support the podcast, I think the best way is just to talk about it or share it with people who you think might like it. You can also leave a review wherever you're listening to this. If you want to work with Ford or learn more about what he's up to, I link to his website, which is called Perfor Humance, and you can find that in your pod player or on my blog post, and he's in the process of launching his own podcast, and you can find him on social media or find his company on social media through that website link too. So without further delay, here is Ford Dyke. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you, Billy. I appreciate the invite. Yeah, so first, just want to know a little bit about your background. What sports did you play growing up? 
Whew. Um, good question. I'm a non-traditional athlete. I was heavily involved in extreme sports. And as a family, we never really watched the Olympics per se, but I was extremely interested in the X Games. And while the X Games were coming more and more online, I got more and more serious and thought to myself, you know, maybe this is something I could pursue as far as a athletic career is concerned. But the interesting thing about extreme sports was shouldn't come as a shocker or surprise to anyone. It hurts when you fall. <laughs> and, you know, every time you take a fall and you get back up, you look yourself in the mirror and you look at the scars on your body and the bones that are misplaced and the pain you have. You're just thinking to yourself, you know, this might not be a career of sustainability. Like this just doesn't seem like something that you could do for a long period of time. So while it was fun and while I chased that dream for a while, ultimately decided to attend college strictly for academics. Now I did also play basketball in high school. Mm. That was really my only traditional sport. But the funny thing is people see me now like, Oh, you know, where'd you play overseas or where'd you play in college? I'm six, mm. four, 200 pounds. So they think that I, when I say I played basketball, they think I've been this size my whole life. But I didn't grow really until college. I grew seven inches in college and wow. then rounded out one more in my master's program. So wow. I stopped playing hoops, you know, formally when I was five foot eight, five, seven and a half, five, eight with shoes on, you know what I mean? So mm -hmm. the cool thing about it though is when you go into college and, you know, you're there and focusing on academics, it opens bigger and brighter doors as opposed to that grind that student athletes experience as as i know you have with your story yeah yeah curious what specifically what extreme sports you were into growing up yeah for sure so i'm from jupiter beach florida which is the southeast coast of florida mm. so anything involved with the water mm. was was you know very close to my heart so surfing skimboarding bodyboarding uh, wakeboarding towing mm. in behind a jet ski we never really got too much into kiteboarding uh, or any type of windsurf or anything like that. But I, I was in vert skateboard, street skateboard, vert inline, street inline, BMX here and there, a little bit of trail riding. Mm. If it had wheels, I was, I was all about it. My family called me hell on wheels. Like that was <laughs> literally my nickname was hell on wheels. And, uh, yeah, I used to build ramps and just, I love speed. I just love that feeling of freedom. Yeah, But again, you know, when you, you catch a stone or you hit a wall, you know, you find yourself in the emergency room with scars and broken bones. You're like, this is not, you know, like this is not smart. Yeah. So as I accrued more and more injuries, especially throughout college, I just decided, all right, I got to really start looking at things. And my mom once told me, she said, you got to live your life. Like you're living it for someone else. Because we were doing skydiving. Like we were, it was just ridiculous. <laughs> you know what I mean? And, and making yeah. up stuff, building things that didn't even really have a name to it. Yeah. Anything that, you know, it involved dopamine and norepinephrine was kind of like where we were at. So Yeah. Yeah, my little brother's way into downhill mountain biking and he actually races. And um, I've just through following him understood how dangerous that sport is but he's also very addicted to it but he's had there's this classic photo of him with like the most shattered wrist 
I've ever seen with my mom in the background with looking like pale as a ghost. It's like this classic shot. And I remember during one of my off seasons in college, I just tried to follow him on like this kind of gentle downhill for him, gentle downhill. But I I ended up going over my handlebars and getting like 20 stitches in my face. And then I was like, oh, "Oh, my my coaches better not find out about this. So I had to like, yeah, it's intense. Yeah. So, and he's just recently broke another bone. So he's just had to finally talk to me. He's like, I don't know if I can keep doing this. It's just like, I can't get, I can't hurt myself once a year like this. So um, he might be going through the same thing that you went through because he's so into that feeling as well. Um, what did you study as an undergrad? Yeah, it's a nice segue with all these injuries in sport. You know, I kind of started getting interested in the psychological effects of that. Like mm-hmm. what is going on in people's minds when they s- sustain or even just suffer a significant injury or a career ending injury. And by no means did I have a career ending injury per se. I, you know, I actually decided that I'm no longer going to be involved with these kind of, of sports while I still surf and, you know, mm-hmm. hop on a skateboard here and there and I ride a bike. It's not to the level or to the extreme, if you will, that it was. So, to answer your question, I'm, I'm laying there and I'm, you know, watching my body heal, but it affects your mind in such a different way. Mm-hmm. So ultimately, I went to college for psychology. I was interested in how is this and why is this going on in the mind? Like, what is this? Ha- what's happening? Mm-hmm. And I got to school and I had a psychology 101 course and I had a biology 101 course because I almost went into marine biology mm-hmm. being from Jupiter, Florida. Mm-hmm. And I was 18 something, whatever years old, I was a puppy and I'm in these classes and I had bio 101 first and the, the professor, it was like, he was speaking Russian. I mean, he was speaking English for sure, but <laughs> I, I just, I just couldn't, I couldn't resonate. And I'm thinking to myself, is this is the way college is like, I'm out. I can't like, this is not, <laughs> this is not fun. This is not fun at all. Yeah. And then right after that, back to back, I had psych 101 and that prof was speaking along the lines of what I had been thinking about, you know, how the mind works, how it operates with the rest of the body, social psychology. I mean, it was general psychology, 101, right? Like this is foundational. Yeah. But I just got more and more interested, more and more serious. So I ultimately went to my advisor and I said, listen, the only way for me to stay in school is if I can take all of my major courses now. Mm. I just spent 18 something years of my life taking courses people told me to take. And now you're telling me that I got to take all these general education courses. I don't want to take this. I, I won't. I won't <laughs> remain interested. I'll be bored. I'll be out. You know. So he was an awesome dude. And I, I don't even remember his name, but I pay homage to that moment because he said, "You know what, young man, let's do it." So I mm-hmm. took as a freshman and sophomore all of my junior and senior courses, and I think that really—I don't want to say forced me, but it allowed me to to grow up and to mature quicker in the academic domain. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. So being amongst juniors and seniors, it kind of forces you to listen and observe and, you know, don't just call out and think you know everything. Just sit back, try to gain as much information as you can through their experience because they've already been through those phases of their academic career. And I had some amazing professors. I went to the University of North Florida in Jacksonville, Florida. Okay. And my profs were so legit. Mm. So, so legit. They all had a backstory. They all were whether they're owned in their own consulting firms or, you know, from other institutions or they worked in industry, they just like were so well-rounded. Mm. And 
it was incredible. I took abnormal psychology and learned about forensic psychology, almost went down that path with criminology. Then I got into social psychology, started learning about friends and family members. You know, you learn a lot about that real quick. Mm-hmm. Getting more and more into biological psychology, how the mind and body connection is existing within each and every one of us. So it, it just happened fast. I went from zero to 60, from psych 101 to upper level courses like that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in hindsight, I think that's what kept me in school. Now, mm-hmm. by junior in senior year, I'm in these gen ed classes, you know, half falling asleep. <laughs> but again, it allowed me to then explore thyself, right? It gave me that time outside of class to, to be in the water and go surf or be in the trails and go ride my bike mm-hmm. or be at the skate park. UNF had a skate park at the time. It was incredible. Mm-hmm. It was a match made in heaven. So go, go skate and just get out and move my body and, and let my mind kind of develop in that manner. So by senior year, I had a roommate of mine. We were best friends since fifth grade. He's like, hey, man, I'm going to grad school. I'm like, what? Like, what? What is grad school? Like, that's not, that does not sound – like, it sounds cool, but it doesn't sound fun. So, you know, you yeah. kind of do you. And I ultimately took a gap year and went back south down to Melbourne Beach and spent some time just on the horizon, you know, and really tried to take that time to figure out what is my next step. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then – were you, what made you ultimately decide to go into grad school and into a PhD program? Yeah. So first I started with my master's degree Mm. and I jumped into a new field. So coming from psychology, I was interested in sports psychology specifically to go back to your earlier question, like what did you study and why? Yeah. I wanted to know why you can take, for example, two basketball players and high level athletes end of the game they got an opportunity to, you know, put this thing down for the dub. And one of them misses and one of them makes. Mm-hmm. Both highly trained, highly skilled, bigger, faster, stronger than everyone else. But my question is, there's something else here that we're not talking about. And I really believe that it was between the six inches mm-hmm. in your head, your brain specifically, right? So studying sports psychology was a little bit difficult at the institution I was at, UNF. They didn't really have those types of courses. They do now. So I started poking around a little bit and doing more and more research during my gap year and ultimately took a little trip around to different institutions. And I heard about this program at Auburn University, kinesiology. I'm like, what the heck is kinesiology? I couldn't even spell kinesiology. Dead serious. Like, I, I literally, I'm like, what is kinesiology? Like, what is that? And so I, you know, trusty Google, started learning more about it. I'm like, this is kind of cool. This has pieces to the puzzle that I'm looking for. So long story, even longer showed up on Auburn's campus July of 2012 for a site visit. And that was it. I mean, the rest is history as far as, you know, staying here. And since 2012, I'm currently residing in Auburn Mm. and I'm a professor at the institution. Yeah. So I'm not even that familiar. And I know probably many of my listeners also will be in the same position that you were when you first looked up kinesiology. So what What is the study of kinesiology? Yeah, so kinesiology, by definition, is the study of human movement, right? Mm -hmm. So kin is kinesthetic. That's movement, essentially. Anology, of course, is the study of. But really, it's an umbrella term. It's kind of like psychology. Psychology is an umbrella term. You have all these other facets that fall underneath it. Kinesiology is the same way in that respect. You've got biomechanics, which is the study of the anthropometrics associated with human movement. 
lens segmentation. I mean, there's a lot going on in that field. That's kind of like the physics of the body. Then you have, in no particular order, by the way, then you've got motor development, how we develop as an individual from a, from a motoric standpoint. So how we learn how to walk, how we learn how to chew and talk and all these different pieces. Hmm. You've got motor learning and performance. That kind of brings it up another level. You've got sport and exercise psychology. You've got psychophysiology. You've got exercise physiology, which is more internal and what's happening at the microscopic and even cellular level. So kinesiology, while it is the study of human movement, it often doesn't really capture everything that it involves mm. in a way. So there's there's definitely a lot of different subtracts you could take within the field itself. Okay. And I did my best to understand your dissertation is something like green exercise and mindfulness for restoring attention, something like that. Right. What, uh, yeah. what was the main finding there? It was something about you were trying to replicate data indicating that green exercise, which is exercise outdoors in a natural setting could restore attention when it's become kind of fatigued. Is that, am I kind of on the right track there? Absolutely. Yeah. You're, you're pulling on my memory strings right now. I know it was only <laughs> three years ago, uh, from a, from a timestamp standpoint, but you know, in academia three years could feel like three decades to be honest, but yeah. you're right. Exactly. So studying attention at the neuronal level, meaning how do we measure someone's attention? I could ask you, Hey, Bill, are you paying attention? You can report yes or no, but uh -huh. that's subjective yeah. in our lab, the lab that I worked in, underneath Dr. Matthew Miller, we were in the performance and exercise psychophysiology lab. Psychophysiology is a really fancy word for mind-body connection. So mm -hmm. in his lab, we had the opportunity to collect data at the objective level, at the neuronal level. So electroencephalography, EEG, fMRI, which is functional magnetic resonance imaging, heart rate variability, HRV. We have all these different tools that we can truly collect what's happening in a participant or even an athlete's brain, which is in essence, their mind, their, their mind is their brain in action. So being able to measure objectively attention got me really, really interested in, okay, attention is key with anything you do, right? Yeah. No matter what you're doing, you have to have full attention to that. But then I started getting more and more interested in, in my roots, you know, being in, in the presence of nature. Like mm -hmm. I said, growing up in Jupiter, Florida, it's an incredible place. And I knew in hindsight that had an effect on me sitting on the sand and looking out to the horizon with no stop signs, nobody telling me to color within the lines, no rules, no regulations. You're there. You, you are exposed yeah. to the environment, to Mother Nature, to the elements. And it gives you a certain feeling, right? Yeah. Bob Marley used to talk about all the time. He said vibration, right? That's a good vibe. That's mm -hmm. exactly what it is. You're putting stuff out on the horizon. It's coming back around and it's making you feel a certain way. So with that experience and then learning about all these different metrics to collect attention, putting that together and then thinking more and more about mindfulness, which I'm sure that'll come up in our conversation. That's a whole, yeah. that's a whole another piece to this puzzle. I decided with my dissertation to bring everything together. Mm -hmm. And while that's your dissertation, you have you know, successions of experiments to lead you up to that. So there were several, four or five experiments that I was a part of, which kind of shaped my road, if you will, to that particular dissertation. So mm -hmm. I was interested in how and why do outdoor spaces affect people's attention, specifically 
directed attention to DAF for short. I'm sure you read that in the mm-hmm. article. Mm-hmm. DAF happens. We're on this call right now. By the end of this call, our attentional system will be decreased. Mm. It's finite. I mean, it's going to go down, right? But then we do things to bring it back up. We go outside. We can take a nap. We can have some nourishment. We can have some water. We can go stretch. There's all these different things that help us restore our attention. But Mm -hmm. it's not infinite. A lot of people think your attention system is infinite. Oh, you just have a bunch. You just keep going. That's not really how it works. Attentional resources, it's it's a limited capacity. And if you don't pay attention, no pun intended, to making sure that your your attentional pie, if you will, stays full, you can get yourself in trouble. And that's how a lot of accidents happen if you read the literature mm-hmm. in regards to performance. So bringing all that together and adding in the psychological construct of mindfulness was something that was very novel. And I was excited about it, you know, and I was going into my last year. I collected like 60 people in, in 14 days. I mean, it was insane just to finish <laughs> out. But uh, it was successful, you know, and while some results were significant, others were not. But for me and for what my advisor suggested, that's the way it should be. You know, it mm-hmm. shouldn't be so perfect. Like you want to have some flaws because that's that's where you learn. We learn by failing. You know, yeah. you don't really learn anything if you're successful the whole time. Yeah, and that that is kind of the the beauty of the scientific method is you find, you know, you try things and see what you can disprove and what you can't. So, um, absolutely. And that, um, what you say about being in nature and restoring attention, it's so intuitive that yeah, I'd be surprised if that wasn't true. I just, I was even yesterday told my girlfriend, we were both, you know, working from home. I was writing code all week, you know, a few evenings, just like watching basketball or doing whatever, my smartphone, and then being out on a hike for a few hours, it does feel like, like free therapy just to like, let your attention rest. And I just felt like totally rejuvenated after doing something as simple as walking in the woods for a while. So I think that's a really cool thing to study. Yeah, it's good stuff. Yeah. So what can you describe the work that you're doing now? Um, are you working with athletes directly? Uh, are you doing research? What, what kind of work are you doing at the university? A little bit of everything. So mm-hmm. right now, as an assistant clinical professor, I have a 100% teaching allocation. Mm-hmm. So my performance is based on my teaching. All right. So I have a full load of teaching. I have 12 hours, fall semester, fall 2020. Mm-hmm. I've got spring 2021 coming up another 12 hours and then summer 2021. So I work on year contracts. Now with that, that doesn't mean I don't do research. That doesn't mean I don't do outreach. That doesn't mean I don't have service allocations. It's just from a contractual standpoint, 100% teaching allocation. Mm. To answer your question, I teach courses in mindfulness-based performance and health optimization, which is a outshoot of my outreach initiative. I've got motor learning and performance, and I have a performance-based psychology class as well, among others, weight management, pillars of health, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. So from a semester standpoint, I'm in the classroom. Right now, clearly we're virtual because of COVID-19, but typically I'd be in the classroom setting. With that, I often have graduate students. I have, you know, as far as a mentorship's concerned, so I'll, I'll oversee between 20 and 30 master's students in our program. I don't have any doctoral students because of my allocation, but some of the master's students will become more and more interested in research. So as far as research is concerned right now, as of 
what is it, August 20, August 30th? Correct. Yeah, August yeah. 30th. There's no research going on for me, for me personally. Mm. But I have a ton of outreach happening. So myself and Olympian Rita Clinton, who works at the institution in our, in our department as well, School of Kinesiology, we do a lot of outreach service, whether it's to local, regional, national. And I, I just actually got back last year from an international opportunity where I present mindfulness-based performance and health optimization. And that's a platform mm. that we have developed since 2013 working with each other. And the platform essentially showcases the importance of optimal health and well-being. So if you want to be able to perform at your highest level, you got to make sure that your health and wellness is of interest as well. So we've got what we call the five pillars of health. And mm. it's really interesting right now, Billy, because of this pandemic, people will approach us as kinesiologists. And the first question that comes up, because, you know, you can't go outside, there's lockdowns, facilities are shut down and what have you. They'll say, hey, what do you recommend for your, for our, our exercise regimen? Or what should I do as far as my training is concerned? Athletes too, athletes, athletes have approached us as well. Yeah. And then the next question kind of gets into this, well, what should I be eating? You know, what, what's my nutritional schedule like? Or, you know, what, what about, you know, do you think Gatorade's good? Or all these different <laughs> questions centered around health and wellness. Yeah. But for me, it's backwards. For me, talking about your movement protocol first is backwards. Mm. So what I have done is I've reframed and totally flipped the script. So what I start with in the mindfulness-based performance and health optimization initiative is the first pillar of health, respiration. Mm. Oftentimes, we don't think of optimal restoration, respiration excuse me, mm. as not only a, a self-care practice, but as a tool and as a technique for us to be able to perform at our highest level. So that's where we start, respiration. Mm. Then we get into hydration because you can only survive two to three days without water. Then we get into nutrition because you can only survive two to three weeks without food. Then we get into movement because obviously as a kinesiologist, movement is critical. And then lastly, we get into recovery and recovery entails napping, sleeping, of course, doing meditation, etc. So mm -hmm. those five pillars, while we break them down in isolation and create separate units for them in our 16-week courses or during our workshops and webinars, what have you. It's important to understand that there's a synthesis that exists there, the interdependence among each pillar. So if I change the way I eat through my nutrition, then I'm probably going to change the way in which I'm recovering through sleep, for example. Mm -hmm. And if my sleep is changing, then I'm probably going to want to do more movement because I'm going to have more energy. And I've got more energy and I'm doing more movement, which means I'm detoxing and sweating. So then I'm going to have to re-up on my hydration. And if all of these other things are in place, then I've got my respiration in order as well. Mm -hmm. So that's really what mindfulness-based performance and health optimization is all about. Now, mindfulness, where does that come in? That's the basis, literally, mindfulness-based. Mm. So we take a kinesiology approach by looking at respiration, hydration, nutrition, movement, and recovery, but we use the base as mindfulness. Mm -hmm. You can't do any of these things unless you are in the present moment, unless you are aware of the fact that, yeah, I've been sitting for four hours straight and my low back doesn't feel good, or I'm dehydrated, I'm getting brain fog and, and concentration difficulties, hmm. or my sleep is totally off, 
or wow, I haven't taken a deep breath in the last three weeks. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. So the, the mindfulness itself, that tool, that technique, that practice, that application-based practice, that's where it comes into play is making sure that it becomes the mortar, the fulcrum to hold all these other pillars together to be able to perform at our highest level without sacrificing our health and wellness. Yeah, that, I love that. And um, that is a really good way of framing why the mindfulness practice is so important. The And I love that you put it at the base of everything else in terms of health and well-being, because I think that as you know, it's gaining popularity, mindfulness and meditation is gaining popularity. But for many of us, and I still find myself in this mode occasionally too, it still gets viewed as like an extra thing. It's something, if I get to it, then that's great. But right. it's obviously not as important as checking my email or in, right. you know, in your, um, with the structure of your program, it, I could imagine it, people that being counterintuitive, that that's actually the start of everything else. And I couldn't agree more, you know, as I've dove deeper into my practice, it has influenced everything else. It's like, you just you start to notice how your mind feels when you're scrolling Twitter for 20 minutes. Whereas before a meditation or mindfulness practice that might've gone unnoticed, you might right. not have been mindful of that, but you don't understand that you're just kind of scrambling your brain as you do that. Same thing, like mindful of an hour after I have three slices of pizza versus like a, <laughs> a, a sweet potato and salad. <laughs> and sure. so, and then just, wow, you know, that, that little bit of mouth pleasure I got from the pizza isn't worth this stomach ache and brain fog. So um, exactly. I really love that, that framing. And I imagine that most of my listeners at this point are interested in mindfulness, but just in case there's somebody who's brand new to the topic, could you just briefly describe what mindfulness is within your program or in general? Yeah, absolutely. So back to your point there on it's gaining popularity, you're absolutely correct. And I think one of the reasons for that is while mindfulness has been a practice on this planet for thousands and thousands of years, yeah. and it's, it's traversed multiple religions, multicultural, I mean, it's, it's, it's been here for a very, very long time. Yeah. It's gaining more and more popularity in the Western world because of science, because of people are able to now measure it. And it goes back to what I was saying before. From a neuronal standpoint, we can put individuals in the fMRI, we can scan their brains, and we can see functional and structural changes occurring by way of these consistent practices. So you can take a novice meditator, you can take an expert meditator, you'll see differences. Mm -hmm. You can take a novice and track them for quite a long period of time, and you can watch these changes occur. So for whatever reason, you know, in, in the Western world, we want data. We want facts. We want the truth, right? Mm -hmm. For us to actually believe in it. I'm kind of the opposite. And I know it's weird. I've got a PhD and I'm, you know, a data <laughs> scientist, but I'm always about how does it make you feel? Mm -hmm. And I tell my students this all the time. We present them information from everywhere around, right? And we always say, hey, this is just food for thought. It may be a little controversial or you may not think it's the truth or you may want to know more about it. But if that's the case, then I did my job because I got you thinking. Mm -hmm. And if you're thinking, you're feeling because those two things don't really happen separately. Mm. 
But I always tell them, pay attention to how you feel. Going back to when you know you said you eat that slice of pizza and you get a stomachache. Okay, you're paying attention to that. You're being mindful. Mm-hmm. Pay attention to when you read something on the internet. How do you feel? Pay attention to when you listen to a song. Someone says something to you. You go view a photo. Whatever experience you're having, pay attention to that. Yeah. To me, that's what being in that moment is all about. Now, if I have to define mindfulness, I try to stay underneath that portion of application, right? I'm all about application. And that's what the platform speaks to, mindfulness-based performance and health optimization. So mindfulness, what's the definition? Great question. This is how I start most of my seminars because people don't know. People, they, they read about it, Time Magazine. They hear about it on an app on their phone. Someone told them about it on a podcast. Their neighbor said they're practicing mindfulness. So no one really has a definitive answer, but I think that's good because it's a personal practice. You should have your own definition for it. What do I teach and what do I share with individuals? It goes like this, an application-based practice. Okay, So application-based practice. Why is that important? Because we utilize that application-based practice to promote and sustain our present moment awareness, which goes back to my research on attention. We start moving down the line a little bit more. Why is that important? We want to be able to direct what we refer to as our energetic state, right? Now, the energetic state, oftentimes you say energy, people start rolling their eyes or they're thinking, oh, you're going to sit cross-legged and burn incense and drive a hybrid and only eat vegetarian. No, rub, no, 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 no. Rub, rub crystals and all the rest. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm like, hey, let me get a 30-second timeout real quick. Let's just review this. Okay, the energetic state, simply comprised of physical, cognitive, and emotional. Mm-hmm. Those things together are your energetic state. So we're taking this application-based practice to generate and sustain present moment awareness in order to direct our energetic state. Why is that important? Because you cannot perform anything at your highest level without paying attention to the energetic state. You can you can cross things off your to-do list and you can maybe – accomplish a task or two but if you truly want to perform at your highest level then you got to pay attention you got to pay attention to all of these pillars you got to pay attention to your respiration you got to pay attention to your hydration your nutrition your movement protocol and Hmm. let me tell you something i leave sleep and recovery for last because i truly believe it is the best i don't Hmm. care what you do i don't care if you are the You are the most optimal breather on the planet. You've got the best hydration protocol. Your nutrition isn't fantastic, and you're doing movement like everyone else. It doesn't matter. If you don't sleep consistently to make sure that you accrue high-quality restoration, you're done. There's no way you're going to be able to perform at your highest level. Sleep takes over everything. You can't out-breathe it. You can't out-hydrate it. You can't Mm. out-eat it. You can't out-move it. Sleep is sleep. So with all of these things together, if we use the application-based practice of mindfulness to keep our awareness in the moment, to ask ourselves, all right, I've been working for two hours. Maybe I should get up and go outside and and take a break and get some fresh air and have some water and center myself Mm -hmm. and bring my awareness back to that space. So when then I go back to that task, I'm ready to perform at an even higher level. 
Yeah, yeah, that's interesting the way you put it that while mindfulness is the the basis and kind of the master skill for everything else, you you put sleep at the kind of top of the pyramid in terms of importance and that's something that I was slow to recognize in my own self. Just I can think back in college the kind of mistakes I made staying up till 2 a.m. studying and then waking up at 6 for practice. And then, you know, in hindsight, I know that I performed worse at practice and in my test because I stayed up so late studying and that right. the, the sleep would have been more important. But yeah, that's something I've been trying to emphasize more in the last year or two. Sleep is interesting too, because a lot of people right now think that, well, if I accrue my six to eight hours, I'm good. And that's, that's just not the case. The, the new research coming out is suggesting while the hours are important, right? Mm. It's important to accrue six to eight. Some people even need eight to 10. Mm. So that's a whole other conversation. But what's more important than the total hours are the hours that you are actually sleeping. Yeah. So the research unpacks that more and says between 10 p.m. and 3 a.m. Those are the most restorative hours of sleep. 10 p.m. Oh, shit. Okay. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> right. And and believe me, as a college professor, when I say that to students, they're like, okay, yeah, <laughs> like that's never going to happen. And I say to them, look, the, the ball is in your court. This is your life. This is your academic journey. This is you trying to get that position you haven't been told, you know, that's why you're in school for or whatever you're here for. This is your health and wellness. This is whether when you are your parents' age, you're going to be on an average of five pharmaceutical drugs. Mm. That That's true. People mm. between 50 and 70 are on an average of five pharmaceutical drug medications. Jesus, Jesus. That's, that blows my mind, Billy. I don't know about you, but that is, yeah. is mind-blowing. Yeah. And we have just effectively given all of our hope and our control and our power up. We've given it up. Hmm. When you ask students, hey, who's your primary health care provider? They look around, they're like, primary health care? Uh, uh, you know, Dr. D, I don't really have one. I mean, urgent care or, hang on, can I call my mom real quick? Or, hey, hold on, I think I got this card in my pocket or in my wallet or whatever. Hmm. And I'm like, no, your primary health care provider is you point mm. to yourself point to yourself mm. and the interesting thing is when people point to themselves where do they point they don't point to their head they point right to their heart mm. that's where they point when you say i am or me you point to your heart you don't point to your head mm. so that's another level of it you know what i mean but it's just sad that we've gotten so disconnected from our own mind body and we've been conditioned to believe that someone else is going to take care of our health for us yeah, I'm glad to hear that you're doing a little bit of the the warning uh, method in your in the way you emphasize these things because I actually really resonate with that style too. It's not just about the positives that can come from doing X, Y, and Z, but you don't want to be the person like so many. You know, if you just kind of go through life the way our culture is set it up right now, unfortunately, then there's a good chance that you'll end up on what was it five to seven uh, medications between 50 and 70. Right. And so you really do, well, you say the ball's in your court. Like, yeah, I know 10 o'clock is early, but you know, these are the alternatives that you can look forward to. If you don't take this stuff seriously, I really, I actually really appreciate that style of communication in this way. Cause it is, it's hard to think of something else that's more important for yourself and others than to take care of your own 
health and viability so that you can be productive and also compassionate and, and, and of service to others too. So health is greater than wealth. Health is greater than wealth. And I yeah. think if we, if we realize that sooner than later, yeah, a lot of global issues will resolve themselves. Yeah. If you, if you see what I'm saying. Yeah. You're preaching to the choir there. I, yeah. I couldn't, couldn't agree more. So your, I watched in one of your webinars, you went into some of the science that's coming back about the kind of things that are changing in the brain and body for consistent meditators, people who have a right. practice who stick with it. So um wondering if you might want to describe some of the things that you're learning and emphasizing in your teaching about what is actually happening at in the level of the brain, things like the... Like I heard you mention the default mode network, um, sure. sympathetic versus parasympathetic nervous system responses. Um, that stuff's all very interesting. And I, I read, um, I'm not sure if you've read the, the Altered Traits book. I have. Yeah, that's awesome. A student of mine gave that to me and I crushed it during the pandemic. <laughs> oh, nice. First, first few months of this thing. Yeah, I was like, let me just jump into this real quick. That was awesome. Yeah, they did a great job. And I, I really like how they, they also highlighted areas where people are exaggerating claims It just it seemed to give the book credibility where they were right. di differentiating between good and bad studies and what we can actually be confident is true. But even in doing that, they found some pretty incredible findings throughout the book. So sure. um, would you mind describing some of the, the key things that you describe in terms of brain and body changes, things that people can expect if they commit to a long-term mindfulness meditation practice? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the, the disclaimer is similar to what is stated in altered traits, because I don't ever want to come off and say so, something to somebody that they think, well, if they do this practice for 10 minutes every morning for, you know, six months or a year, their life is going to be changed forever. Because you just yeah. never know. There, there's so much variability associated with a practice like mindfulness yeah. that you can't really control that individual's practice the way you can control your own practice. And this is why I am such a proponent in proving it to yourself. Yeah. So I'll be happy to highlight some things, but for your listeners and for anyone interested in the practice of mindfulness, you just got to start. You just got to start now. Try it. Try pushing back from your table. Try putting away all your devices. Try sitting with yourself for one minute, try it for one minute and pay attention, pay attention to what's going on in your mind, pay attention to what's going on in your environment, pay attention to what's happening in your body and see if you can separate yourself from any type of judgment or reactivity or trying to label something like, oh, that was a door slamming outside. Try to separate yourself from that. That's the practice, Billy. That's the challenge. And I'll emphasize challenge because it's not easy. It takes a long time, a long, long time. I've been doing it for several years and I'm still trying to get better and better at it. But it's not a goal-oriented or results-oriented approach. It is a process-oriented approach. It's all mm -hmm. about being consistent and being disciplined and being diligent and having the patience to understand that this is not a quick fix. This is not something that, you know, if I download this app, I'm going to be 20 pounds lighter and I'm <laughs> going to have better food in my refrigerator and I'm going to be the top executive in my company. 
that's just that's just not the way it works. But to answer your question about what happens in the brain and what happens in the body, to highlight a few things, and I'll start with the parasympathetic and, and sympathetic nervous system, mm-hmm. which is a which is a subcomponent of our autonomic nervous system. So we have certain systems in place that really help us survive. So if we're walking down the street and we hear a car horn and tires screeching, what are we going to do? We're going to turn around as quickly as possible because 80% of the information we process is through our visual cortex. So we're going to look, we're going to look right away. What's that noise? Mm. And then we're going to try to listen even more keenly. Our pupils are going to dilate. Our heart rate's probably going to go up a little bit. Our respiration's going to change. Blood's going to reallocate to our extremities away from our central cavity. Our digestive system's going to shut down. Our urinary tract's not going to need to do anything. We are in fight or flight mode, Mm. sympathetic activation. Okay. Now that's very good for us. If there's a car that's about to hit us or if there's an accident occurring and we have to report what's going on, that is very good. That's, that's been in our system for as far as we know, our ancestors are sitting in their cave, hanging out, having their dinner. And next thing you know, a mountain lion shows up fight or flight. Are you going to run or are you going to fight this thing off? Mm-hmm. You're not going to sit there and just say, oh, yeah, that's a cool looking mountain lion. Or that's, <laughs> wow, that car that's about to head for me, I wonder if it's going to hit me or not. Yeah. No, it's, it's survival. It's evolutionarily beneficial for us to have these systems. The way in which it becomes disadvantageous for us is if this happens at a low level for an extended period of time. Meaning, we wake up in the morning. Our alarm clock hits, right? So we rush out of bed. We just get on the hamster wheel. We check these emails. We react to life. We get into our office space or we drive down the motorway and we react. Everything is a reaction, right? Mm. And then we go through our day. We check our emails. We're reacting. We're reacting. We're reacting. We get home. We're so tired from reacting. We get back on social media. We react some more. And we don't realize the detriments of what it's doing to us physiologically, meaning we are having these little sympathetic activations throughout our day all day long. And so the cortisol is being released, a stress hormone in our brain. Mm. And when that happens and you don't take care of it, you start to see some pretty serious effects that occur from this going on for years and years and years and years. And so mindfulness becomes a tool for us to learn how to respond to life, not to react, but to respond. Because between a stimulus or a stimuli and a response, there's always a space. There's always a space, right? So if I make a noise or you hear something in your environment, like a loud crashing noise, there's a space between when that sound made a sound and your brain processed that auditory information to then alert you to say, Oh shoot, what was that? Right. Mm -hmm. There's a space. There's a space. You have a chance to choose how you want to respond. Mm -hmm. And with mindfulness, that space gets wider and wider and wider and wider, which in a lot of my webinars, I highlight the importance of that because for athletes, if you've got a stimulus, you got to make a response pretty quickly. But if you have more time 
to make your response than your opponent does, well, guess what? You're going to make a better response. Mm-hmm. You're going to have more accuracy. Your decision is going to be higher, etc. In yeah. the in the corporate domain, same thing. If I have a superior tell me something, I have a chance to figure out how I want to respond to that. I can react to it real quickly. Oh, you don't know what the da 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 da, <laughs> right? But if I respond, I can come from a place of calmness and centeredness and compassion and understanding and provide that individual with the response that comes from a place of no defense, no reactivity, no judgment, just factual, objective. Here is what it is. Mm-hmm. Here's what it is. Yeah. So what can, what can you expect, right? You can expect that, that getting wider, which is yeah. huge. And with that getting wider, you're going to have a greater chance to have parasympathetic mode activation, which is the opposite side of, of sympathetic para is that rest and digest that calm centered place you feel when you practicing a certain mindfulness technique mm-hmm. or when you first wake up in the morning before we react to our devices or before we check the news or before we have a conversation with a neighbor, that little space right there between stimulus and response can be parasympathetic. And if we set our day up that way, then the rest of our day transpires underneath that parasympathetic mode versus if we wake up and sympathetic and we start reacting that train gains momentum so fast that you can't stop it you can't stop it the only way to stop it is oh it's friday night i'm gonna go out and i'm gonna utilize certain substances to make me forget about all this stuff what like that doesn't even that doesn't even make sense that's the best best anxiety medication on the market. <laughs> sure, sure. Yeah, yeah. And, it's, and it's legal, which yeah. is a whole other conversation. Yeah, yeah. There's so many threads that I'm interested in and I want to go to. I, I'm going to ask you about morning routines in a little bit, but I don't want to lose this track because in relationship or related to the stimulus and response um, widening when you start to practice mindfulness, another way that I've thought about it or I've been taught to think about it and maybe you have some more insight on this is to not become identified with what arises in life or and or in consciousness, which are ultimately the same thing. So right. in terms of athletics, to use a sports example, if the referee makes, let's say like you see this a lot in basketball, and this is something that I used to do. And I actually noticed some clear examples of this as a player where you miss a pretty easy layup and it's like your fourth fourth missed shot in a row and the frustration and the shame and the like self-consciousness of that mistake that's been compounded on a few mistakes i just i react to it i get so upset with myself and with the world that i'll reach in and make a stupid foul and put them on the free throw line right away right or i remember a clear example too after i'd been spent about a year practicing meditation the first shot, and I write about this in this like book draft I've got, the first shot that my new coach, my senior year, ever saw me take in a live situation, I shot an air ball. And I remember just all of the feelings of, oh my God, like these these dark thoughts racing through my head. Oh my God, I'm going to get cut because this was kind of a tryout situation. Oh my God, I'm going to get cut. Oh my God, what an embarrassing shot. And so like what my my when I used to identify with those feelings and react to them, like you're saying, it was all, you know, I would either clap my hands and scream fuck or 
try to wipe my hands and make it seem to everyone else that the ball slipped or try to like smile as if it was some kind of like, un, you know, just showing everyone else that it was some mistake that doesn't often happen. But I remember in that moment, it's a clear memory of one of the first times that it really clicked for me where I literally, I just found my spot. I complimented the screener. I found my spot on defense and I took a breath and I actually ended up having a good scrimmage. And that was a moment where I could have easily slipped into my previous habit of letting a mistake compound and kind of let my mind spiral into that kind of like reactive state of that, that is not conducive with optimal performance. So it's this, the, you know, same thing. If I get a little annoyed with something my girlfriend says, it's not, it's not snap back at her. It's like, okay, you're annoyed. What is the feeling of annoyance? Like, how are you going to respond to this? And that stuff, it's not that I'm perfect. I still say stupid things, of course, but Sure, yeah. um, mindfulness allows me to respond more skillfully than it otherwise would. And I, I can see that getting better and better the more I practice. Yeah, it's really, it's really well said. And to, to delve into it more as far as what's happening in the brain when you're mentioning, you know, you're becoming more skillful. So people often want to know, well, you know, as a psychophysiologist, tell me what's going on. A couple things, a lot of things for sure, but a couple things to, to highlight and, you know, really take away from this because it's, it's pretty straightforward. So we have two different networks in our brain. We've, we've a lot of networks in our brain, but I'm going to talk about two different networks specifically. We have the task positive network and we have the default mode network. Mm. Okay. These two areas of the brain, they don't operate in succession. They don't operate at the same time. You can have one on and one is off. Right. Mm. So the more we practice these techniques, the more we practice being able to self-regulate and control our mind and control our responses, our brain is going to change, right? It has to. When you listen to a new song, your brain has changed. When you go to your favorite restaurant and you have the best meal on the, on the menu, your brain is going to change. Mm-hmm. Your brain changes every day, all day long. Yeah. That's why we're human. That's what makes us human is we have this large frontal lobe. And we have the ability to induce neuroplasticity, which is the changing of the structure and the changing of the function of the brain. So the more we practice these things, the brain becomes more efficient. And with efficiency, really what we're talking about here is not more work, but actually less work. And the work becomes smarter, not harder, if we can use that analogy. Mm, Yeah. So these, these areas of the brain are switching as we're practicing. And, and this could take a while for people. This could take six months, a year, six years, 10 years. It's different for everyone. Mm-hmm. So for people to jump into it and think that, you know, after a 30-day free trial of utilizing a certain app, they're going to have default mode network on and task positive off or vice versa, that's that's something that I would be a little weary of. I would I would be hesitant to say, yeah, you know that's that's a claim or that's a, a situation that is going to happen. Now, if you are consistent and you try these practices every day, and the reason I say try is because there's learning involved there. You're not going to become an expert. It's interesting when people say, "Well, you're a subject matter expert in mindfulness." That to me, that's so counterintuitive. How could you be an expert in mindfulness? Hmm. You can talk to Tibetan Buddhist monk or a Zen Buddhist monk. And they, they would say expert in mindfulness. That doesn't even, that's not even, <laughs> that's like an oxymoron. You can, yeah. How does that even, 
right? You're always becoming, you're always learning, you're always growing and developing and maturing. So with these practices, yes, your brain is changing and your body's changing as well. But you have to lean in. You have to pay close attention to those changes. If you're reading it in a magazine or if you're you know, watching it on a YouTube video, don't expect the same things that are being advertised or marketed are going to happen to you. But here's the thing. Here's what's cool. Things may happen to you that are not being advertised or marketed. Because yeah. it's not flashy, it's not sexy, it's not what people want to see or hear. Yeah. But everyone's journey is different. Yeah. So with that, I would just encourage people to, to give it a try. And for 30 days, for three months, for three years, document what you experience. Write in a little journal. Make notes on your phone. Record yourself before, during, and after. Whatever you want to do, whatever your you know modality is to capture that experience. I think can be very, very beneficial for people for a multitude of reasons. Nice. Hey, Ford, I'm going to move. My girlfriend just started the shower and I can hear it. I'm going to move real quick. No worries. Let me go grab a, a refill on my water real quick. Okay. Sounds good. I'll be right back. Thank you. Practice what I preach, guys. Stay hydrated. <laughs> yes, exactly. Okay. Um, I'm just going to jump back in as if I remember what I was going to say. Cool. Yeah, you, you can kick it back. Go for it. Okay. Yeah, I'm really I'm happy to hear that you're emphasizing that dynamic, which I've also noticed as I've been trying to encourage some of the athletes that I work with to start a meditation practice and they read some of the marketing material behind some of the apps and books and magazines like you say that you know, and it's all very shallow. It's kind of what they talked about in altered traits like the difference between the wide path and the deep path. Um, right. It's, it's emphasis on productivity and better sleep and these things that once you're experienced, like once you've committed to a meditation practice, these things are great, but they're not really the ultimate point of practice. And for those who are fed this kind of material and then they sit down to meditate, like, and, and, and they notice what happens to everyone when they first try is that you might not actually feel that kind of calm, restful state that's being advertised to you because, like you said, it is difficult. It is, it does require discipline. That can be discouraging, I think, for many young people who, sure. especially in a culture where we are fed so much instant gratification and entertainment whenever we want it. You know, I think it, it makes it, it's, it's kind of a blessing and a curse. It makes it especially difficult to commit to a practice like this, but also, um, in some ways, especially valuable because you talk about how it's a discipline and it's difficult, but those are actually some of the reasons why I've come to like it so much. It's like, it's this, you know, twice a day, I'm going to actually just stop and let my mind settle. And even if I feel like shit, I'm just going to pay attention. I'm going to like, what does, you know, pain or exhaustion or a headache actually feel like if you pay attention to yeah. it. Yeah. And so I've actually found some meaning in that kind of anchor to my day, especially after having been an athlete where that was kind of built in, where you had a discipline and you had responsibility and something difficult to pursue once a day. And so I think meditation has really been key in that way. So if there's anyone listening who's struggling for that reason, I just like to encourage those who are interested in trying it to, to view it more on the long-term frontier than 
the kind of quick fix. I'm going to do this so that I can be more productive on this project or fall asleep a little bit quicker. Um, so I wanted to quickly touch on the differences between the default mode network and what was the other network that's related that you mentioned? Task positive network. T- task positive. So in my reading, I've they've come to think of the default mode network as not perfectly correlated with what in a spiritual realm you would call like the ego part of the mind, but right. in but pretty close to that, if I'm not mistaken, where it's kind of the like self-referential aspect of the mind. How am I doing? What do other people think of me? How is my life going? What am I going to eat for dinner? It's this kind of mind wandering aspect of the, of the mind that is amplified when the default mode network is most active. And you can correct me where I'm getting any of this wrong. No, you're right on point. Okay. And then the task positive, I'm assuming I hadn't, I didn't know much about that until seeing your webinar and listening to you talk just now. Is that the part of the brain that's more in conjunction with kind of a flow state where it's, you're actually kind of losing yourself in experience. You're concentrated on something, whether it's in meditation or just on a, you know, playing music or sports, or I'm sure you experience some of that in your extreme sports, that kind of like that razor's edge of focus where you're completely present. Um, am I getting that mostly right? Yeah, absolutely. So just to highlight some of the things you discussed, we want to reduce the activity in the default mode network because that brain is a, that area of the brain is associated with mind wandering and cognitive rumination. So as you mentioned, that, that ego side, if you will. Mm-hmm. But for the listeners to understand, mind wandering and cognitive rumination happens a lot throughout our day. Neuroscientists suggest that we have an average of 80,000 thoughts a day. Mm-hmm. Okay. And that's in a 12 hour period. That's not including dream wake cycles. So mm-hmm. that, that's, that's a lot. That's a lot of thoughts. Right. And that's an average. So if we're able to reduce the activity in the default mode network, we can then effectively reduce mind wandering and cognitive rumination. Mm. Why is that important? If you reduce your mind wandering, you're going to be more focused in the moment. You're going to have more attentional resources of that pie I mentioned earlier to allocate towards the task at hand, as opposed to your pie is being consumed by things that are not helping you perform at your highest level. Mm. So we're able to reduce that activity. And as I mentioned earlier, the practice of mindfulness has been shown to activate task positive network, thus deactivate default mode network. And when we increase the activity in the task positive network, in essence, what we're doing is we're having a chance for our brain to have a greater uh, attentional control. And attentional control is that focus, is that present moment awareness, is that flow state, mm-hmm. is when all cylinders are clicking synchronicity at its finest right Right. and with that what we're trying to do is the consistency in the practice the more often that occurs the more likely you'll see shifts in what is referred to as trait mindfulness so you have two different subcomponents you have trait and state trait we're all inherently mindful to a certain degree and that's what i referred to earlier we have a large frontal lobe and that prefrontal cortex is utilized for us to make decisions and judgments and plan ahead and reflect on the past 
right? So that's, that's really what separates us from our other mammalian species. Mm. So the more often this occurs, we see these shifts in trait mindfulness, meaning the more we have a consistent practice built in, we go from low trait mindfulness to potentially medium or from medium to potentially high. And when we're in medium, we can go high medium. If we're in high, we can go high, high, right? There's different levels within each of those subcategories. And this is really indicated in the research on epigenetics, meaning our genes are not in concrete. Okay. We can turn genes on and we can turn genes off. If you have a gene in your body that is associated with heart disease and your grandparents had it and your great grandparents had it and it skipped your parents' generation for whatever reason it was, but you know, we know from genetic research that it's still somewhere in your stream. Okay, great. That doesn't mean you're going to have heart disease because Mm -hmm. you live your life in a way where you disregard that pizza and you pay attention to that sweet potato as a nutritional example, or you don't consume a lot of sugary substances, whether that is alcohol or soda or different types of sport drinks. And you focus on water and you focus on infusing it with lemons or limes or any type of citrus or berries or even herbs. Mm. So you can turn these genes off and you can turn these genes on, but that's where the lifestyle medicine comes into play. So people will say, well, I have a grandfather who had lung disease and, and lung cancer. Oh, well, why are you smoking a vape pen then? What are you doing? (laughs) What are you doing? Well, it's healthier than a cigarette. Are you serious right now? Like, like seriously, are you serious? Because that right there is, it's just, if, if you want to live a happy and healthy life, then lean in for a second and think, okay, the choices I make, the daily investments I'd have are directly going to affect the way in which my life transpires. Now, of course, I could walk outside and a lightning bolt could hit me. I can go down the street and a, and a car could take me out. Like that, those things happen, of course. Mm-hmm. But while we're on this planet, why would you not want to feel your best? Yeah, that's what I always wonder. And I walk around and, and you know, it's really sad, really. I, I, it's, it's discouraging to know that in our country, in the United States of America, the obesity rate, the heart disease, it's, 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 the diabetes it's amazing and now it's going into the children yeah childhood diabetes childhood obesity and i'm just thinking to myself how did this happen how did this happen and so as an educator i try to get that across to people i'm not trying to tell you that you know if you don't do this you're gonna die tomorrow that's not what i mean and i'm not trying to tell you if you do do this you're going to live till you're 200. Of course, that's not even possible. Yeah. But what I'm trying to do is to get people to think. Think about the way in which you want to be. How do you want to show up? How do you want to feel when you do show up? Do you want to feel at your best? All right, then let's have a conversation. If you don't and you don't care and you pull the woe is me or I don't got time or this is part of my DNA or yada, yada, yada. I'll still try to have a conversation with you, but if you put those walls up, then it's just a matter of time. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. And you mentioned the kind of 
things that are going on with our country, that's been one of the most dispiriting things I've noticed in following the healthcare debate, whether you're a liberal or conservative or what party you're in. I just, I'm always waiting for someone to actually talk about how the root of all of the complications we deal with as a country is because of how unhealthy we are as a country and how that drives up costs and it makes everyone more anxious. And so, yeah, I, I, I love that you emphasize that. It's really great. I had a few more things here on the outline, but I'm too tempted. I want to, I think I'm just going to abandon them for now and see if we have time to come back to them because I want to, as someone who was an athlete and now is interested in health and performance and well-being, I think that I want to ask you a few questions about what kind of practical things you either instruct or or are practicing yourself, um, just some specifics on what you do to optimize health and performance. So I mentioned you mentioned um, starting your day off trying to be in a more parasympathetic parasympathetic state with your nervous system. So what kind of things are you doing for your morning routine or what kind of things do you advise people who want to feel and perform their best to do when they wake up and or not to do when they wake up? So with that teaser, you can look forward to the next episode, which will be the part two of the conversation where we dive into more practical applications, the things that Ford's doing in his own routines for evening routines morning routines, sleep routines, stretching, hydration, diet, exercise. He has a lot of he spent a lot of time studying and experimenting with different things. So, I think this is a good stopping point and you can look forward to the next episode next week. If you're listening to this sometime in the future in a month or in 50 years from an underwater city or something, you can look for I guess it'll be episode 27. We'll be part 2 with Ford. So, thank you for listening and I'll see you here next week. If you like the podcast, please consider subscribing to my newsletter, which you can find at billyhanson.net forward slash newsletter. This is the best way to stay in contact with my work, as I'll be sending out new podcast announcements along with other written content. You can also support the show by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, subscribing on Spotify, or sending the podcast to someone who you think might like it. Thank you for listening and for your support. It's a sauce.